The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. God, I loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking off-brand franchise installments. We're talking casual homoeroticism. And we're talking about face rape. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking about one of the stupidest fucking movies I have ever seen in my entire life. Wow. I know. <laughs> I, I don't... I, I haven't decided yet if it's bad. We're gonna... <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna make a verdict at the end of this episode. I don't know. But before we get to the film... Uh, I do want to point out a guest that we have. Ladies and gentlemen, you know her from her writing at Infinite Frontiers, as well as the Joe Bob Briggs fanzine, or from her Trapped by Gender column at Bloody Disgusting, which looks at gender roles in horror films. Please welcome Alice Collins. Hello! Hi! It's like a bloody reunion, except that none of us have ever met in person. I know. Oh my! <laughs> it's, yeah, that's just, that's our curse, apparently. And everyone, we're talking about Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday, or Jason Goes to Hell, or Friday the 13th, Part 9, Jason Goes to Hell, I don't really know, whatever you want to call it. I got some info on that for you. <laughs> so, I, I want to start off with that really quick before we get into the meat and potatoes of this movie. Alice. I sent you a list of movies that you could pick from to guess for episodes to guest on. You picked yep. this one. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> Trace is still amazed. I voluntarily decided to pick it. I didn't think anyone was going to want to come on this episode, but can you maybe give us a Sparknotes version of why you wanted to do this movie? <laughs> well, when I was a kid, uh, I would be at like, there were rental video rental stores everywhere. So like I'd be in like, Every single, like, gas station had, a, like, their own little video rental section. They always had horror movies. And that covered with, like, the with like the worm coming out of the eye mask and the flames mm-hmm. were, like, always, always popping out to me. So, like, when I was older, I thought, hey, I remember that movie. Let's get the one named The Final Friday first. <laughs> so it was my first Friday the 13th movie. That'll do it. That nostalgia goggles firmly on i totally understand you're right though the cover of this movie is very striking i actually remember too seeing the trailer for it it's a it's i mean okay like this movie the trailer for this movie is chopped to bits but it's really good (laughs) is it just a bunch of explosions yeah so it's like it's a 60 second trailer like it's basically a teaser that doesn't show you any plot and it's like you know the close-up on a, a black like space and it's like evil has many forms evil wears many masks blah 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 and then it zooms out and it's like this metal hockey mask and it's um jason will go to hell and then it's like just a super cut of like a bunch of like just action shots from the movie with a really good music track by the way and then then that's it it's like jason goes to hell the final friday and it never gets better than that it doesn't (laughs) 
I'm kidding. I fucking love this movie. So I'm totally with Alice on this one. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners, whoever you are, this is bullshit. Because (laughs) (laughs) Alice, we're ganging up on Trace. No, no, no. no. (laughs) I watched this movie one and a half times last night. I watched the movie, the unrated cut, which, by the way, is two minutes longer than the rated cut. Um, It's 88 minutes versus 90 minutes. And I watched... 45 minutes of it again with the commentary on because it is director adam marcus and uh one of the screenwriters dean laurie on the commentary oh i'm sorry i know oh man i turned it off because i was like well this isn't gonna be very i mean it's informative but it's like well we'll get into it so <laughs> this quote-unquote movie wow there well no we're gonna i mean i i'm alice i know you probably know a lot of this but we're gonna get into some of like the production of this movie and how it's not really um, it's like a piece of it's like a bunch of pieces of movies, different movies. Yeah, I can tell you how a good chunk of them came about. Not all of them, but at, at least a few. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the e true Hollywood story of Jason Goes to Hell. I mean, that's it. if anything, even though I don't think this movie is good, it is an admirable, ambitious failure. But we'll let let's go about some facts first. So, yes, Jason Goes to Hell was released on August 3rd, 1993. This is the only Friday the 13th film to get released in the 90s. This, uh, yeah, because this movie basically killed the franchise. <laughs> Which is what everyone said after Jason Takes Manhattan. Yes, and I will say I would watch this over Jason Takes Manhattan because I think Jason Takes Manhattan oh, is quite sure. boring. Super boring. Uh, it is distributed by New Line Cinema, and also that's very important to note because that is this is the first New Line Cinema Friday film paramount after part eight was like fuck this let's get rid of this and new line was like yeah sure we got freddy which will come into play later what how i know oh yeah the the dvd cover of mine said it's a quote fangoria review quote and it's like this is what the best ending of any horror movie we've ever seen and it's like guys the 90s the ending's pretty rad at least it it is well, I, I wrote this out because I was like, I wonder though if the review was like super negative, but then they were like, but the ending's really good. And like the marketing team at New Line was like, let's pull that one because that's the only good thing anyone said about this movie. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> it's way harsh. I know. I'm, I I say this in jest. I mean, because if you listen to the fucking commentary, Adam Marcus and Dean Laurie are also very, find this movie very funny and the making of it very funny and the reception of it very funny. <laughs> In fact, it's yeah. almost campy, you would say. It's insane that, uh, first thing, Adam Marcus was 23 when they gave him this film. He was Ugh. the youngest director that they had at the time, and like the only thing that I think that he had was a script. Um, he was like an NYU student, uh, he was a grad, and um, he had a script that eventually turned into a weird, weird zombie-ish movie called My Boyfriend's Back for Disney. Oh, oh right. I know yeah. that movie. <laughs> yeah, so that, 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 that I guess that gets you a, a Jason film. In the 90s. And, Joe, I will take your cue. Uh, <laughs> I also forgot to mention that this is week Bitch, one. do your job. Come I on. I know, I know. Uh, yeah, this is week one of our eight-week camp marathon. Now, we have discussed camp a lot on this podcast before, but we've never really delved into it, unless you listen to our episode on Auto or Up With Dead People, in which Kyle Turner schooled us on the art of camp and how he is very, has a very specific definition of camp. Yes. I didn't listen. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But yeah, so we are going through an eight-week marathon of really ridiculous, funny, sometimes intentionally so, sometimes not, uh, horror films. So, 
I guess before we get into how this film was received, we can talk about what we think camp is or what we know camp to be. For me, camp is like very much like, oh, it's art in bad taste almost. Like it's just, it's knowingly bad. Intentional bad taste. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, like, like, like John Waters. Yeah. I think that's camp done well. I think unfortunately in horror, what we also often see is unintentionally bad camp, which is somebody made a piece of shit and then it gets resuscitated or appropriated by horror fans because we love glorious trash. Yeah. And so you, you'll see the term camp be thrown around a lot. And that's basically like code for someone saying it's bad, but I like it. Exactly. See also our written analyses of Anaconda from earlier last year. Yes, very correct. So, I mean, we have a wide variety of films coming up in the next two months, so we'll uh, we'll see a lot of different kinds of camp. And the fact that we're starting with this one is probably appropriate because it's very bad. So it's all over the place. Yeah, it's all over the place. <laughs> it's so uneven. It is so uneven. So yeah, this movie was made for three million dollars, which is kind of, I mean, cool. It's impressive. It's impressive. And it, what's, let's go into this box office though. It opened at number two. Behind The Fugitive, which was in its second weekend at number one, it opened with $7.6 million and went on to gross $15.9 million. Now, here's the the crazy thing that I found though $15.9 million domestic gross was enough to be the highest grossing horror film of 1993. It also made more than Jason Takes Manhattan. It did. Which is funny then that people call this a franchise killer. I appreciate that if you look at the content, it's definitely not the Friday film that you expected it to be. But arguably, Manhattan is still the franchise killer because it made the lowest amount of money and it's also not enjoyable. Well, if anything, though, Jason Takes Manhattan is also a liar in just in its title alone, whereas this one is not because <laughs> Jason does go to hell. <laughs> It's it's it delivers more. Yeah. Um, I did want to point out that Hocus Pocus and Nightmare Before Christmas did top this in 1993. So I guess in my data, like they did not consider those horror movies. Those are not horror movies, Trace. But they're family, family. Those are horror movies. movies. Yeah. They're family horror. Exactly. It's like Mr. Boogity. It's Halloween Town. Yes. Thank you so much, (laughs) Alice. I I need someone on my side for that, because you're going to be on Joe's side for a lot of this episode. It's fine. This is true. (laughs) Uh, I don't think this went overseas, so I don't have any international grosses for you, but um, the $15.9 million gross uh, adjusted for today's money is $34.7 million, which, I mean... It's not great, but it's respectable. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. I was like, you know, you see, like, some Blumhouse movies making $34 million today, and again, this was a $3 million budget, so it wasn't... I mean... It made more than four times its money back. No, it's undeniably a success. Even if you don't like the film financially, this film works. Yeah. Definitely. In terms of actual reception, though, uh, no one liked this. <laughs> In, I, I believe, a first ever for this podcast, the Rotten Tomatoes critic percentage and the audience percentage match. Ooh. Amazing. I know. Both of them are at 24%. However, critics are giving it an average score of 3.87 out of 10, whereas Hmm. audiences are giving it an average score of 4.82 out of 10. I thought you were going to say 5, and I thought, wow, that seems really high. (laughs) And then Metacritic, critics give it a 17 out of 100, and users give it a 37 out of 100. I think the 37's fair. Yeah, it's not untrue. It is important to remember, though, that back in these days, when you think about Rotten Tomatoes scores from back in the 90s, they're 
pulling from a very small pool and likely no horror outlets contributed to that score that is very very true well that's where your audience score comes in though i i I did this is true i didn't i didn't put the number (laughs) but 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 that's also where you're like all right even in fandom in friday the 13th fandom this movie isn't highly regarded i think it all usually when you see people rank their the the franchise um the last one is either going to be this or part five and maybe part eight I'm like, part five, that means nothing to me. I know Joe's like, well, okay, Joe doesn't like this franchise, so that's why he likes this movie. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought about it today as we were prepping for this. I realized, so yes, caveat, full full disclosure, I'm not a huge fan of Friday the 13th. It's my least favorite of the big three 80s horror franchises. And Trace, I'm not having this discussion with you I know. again about will, which ones I, are the big I three. Will, I will not jump in there. It's fine. <laughs> fuck Child's Play. Fuck Hellraiser. Love them. But no, they're not big three franchises. Well, the mine's 80s. a big four, which is why I count Chucky. But that's fine. Continue. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> um yeah to me i do like the ones that are not considered the good canonical versions so i like the carrie versus jason aka number seven entry and then i like this one and i like jason x and all the rest of them i'm kind of like like two is a demonstrably good horror film but yeah seven is just fun it's friday the 13th that that movie is is just as gay there is no none there is no chemistry between those characters (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i i did a franchise marathon last a little over a year ago and um my big change i was surprised at how much more i liked seven um so that rose in my ranking and how much less i enjoyed part three so that dropped a little bit Uh, yeah but i will agree that jason x is kind of amazing it is amazing. It is a brilliant piece of film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, we probably could have done Jason X for camp as well. We could have. And it also has David Cronenberg in it, so it would have had your Canadianness in it too. Oh, that shit was filmed in Vancouver like nobody's business. <laughs> it was also most of Cronenberg's like crew that shot Jason X. I thought that movie was filmed in someone's garage. So <laughs> I Yes, Robert Rodriguez did the special effects. <laughs> they filmed that in Spy Kids. Yeah, that's I mean, that's kind of all I have for the reception. So I mean, Adam Marcus, who this was his first directorial film, as Alice said, he was twenty two, twenty three years old, so that's insane. That's shocking. It's just crazy to think that, I mean, I get it that at this point, New Line is saying, maybe we need some new blood or, you know what, we have nothing to risk with this franchise because it's so DOA after Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But it's insane to think that anyone would just pass the reins to a major franchise to an untested 22 to 23 year old man. Crazy. It's a very strange story how it, how it came to be. Give us the deets. Oh, yeah, here's the deets, baby. Um, So, like, after, like, part eight didn't perform as well as Paramount wanted, they just sort of stopped making it. And Sean S. Cunningham literally just wanted to make, you know, Freddy versus Jason. Right. And he was only able to negotiate the use of Jason and not the title Friday the 13th. <laughs> which is why it's not so yeah, it's that's called jason jason goes to hell the final friday <laughs> so that's also why the other one's called jason x and the other one's called freddy versus jason's because of right. that same deal yeah i never put that together yeah. yeah well that's also why at any box set for the film it will not include jason goes to hell or jason x or freddy versus jason except for that one that 
they, they did it once, but it didn't have the unrated cut of this film, so I didn't buy it. And now it's out of print, and now it's like $800 or something online. It's <laughs> insane. Yeah. So, one thing I do want to point out, though, um, Adam Marcus hasn't really done a lot, but he is one of three writers on Texas Chainsaw 3D, uh, which is another Shot. really yeah, <laughs> really <laughs> stupid franchise entry. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, you have Harry Manfredini coming back to do the score. He's done, like, most of the music for, I think, almost every single one except for... One through eight. six. And then I know he did... Yeah, I know he did that. Nine and... I did ten. Nine and ten. He did not do eight, Freddy vs. Jason, or the remake. Okay, yep. The cinematographer who... His main credit is on the 90s comedy Baps. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I think you said a movie title, but I can't be sure. It's like I, I have no idea. It's B asterisk A asterisk P asterisk S no asterisk. It's it's I think it's like an early Halle Berry like sex comedy from the nineties. Oh, with Halle Berry, Natalie DeSalle, and Martin Landau. Not important. Those but... are not people who should be making a movie together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a really weird. It's it's like a um. Whatever, it doesn't matter. And the only this movie has really no connection to the rest of the films in the franchise. Apparently, there was a comic book that bridged the gap between Manhattan and this one, but I don't know what the plot of that was because if I remember correctly, eight uh, Manhattan ends with Jason being melted in toxic waste in the New York sewers. Correct. I've never seen the comic in in like fit person, so I have no idea. So. Without knowing that gap, uh, it does explain his mask and why it's melted to his face. Uh, Joe, mm -hmm. tell us what this movie's about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. After being lured into a trap at a cabin at Crystal Lake, Jason Voorhees, Kane Hodder, is repeatedly shot and then blown up by a SWAT team. During the autopsy, Bill, Richard Gant, the coroner, consumes Jason's heart and immediately becomes possessed by the fiery bits of Jason's spirit. Cut to Robert Campbell, Stephen Culp, the host of a trashy news series, American Case File, as he hires bounty hunter Creighton Duke, Stephen Williams, to put an end to Jason Voorhees. Duke sets his sight on Diana, Aaron Gray, a local diner waitress who shares a connection to Jason and is still close with her daughter's ex, Stephen, John D. LeMay, who was so weird to me to find out that he is in this movie because I've watched all of Friday the 13th, the TV series, and he is the main actor in that, and he has no relation to this film franchise. He's in the movie solely because of the TV series. The producer wanted it that way. That is so weird. But, like, why not have him play the same character at a different point in his life? It just... No clue. This, I mean, that's the thing. This film is so separate from the entire franchise. There's no connective tissue other than Jason. And that's, that's, I think that's really why so many fans hate the movie. I don't... Oh, for sure. I think the goofiness, like, can, like it can be sidestep. But, like, even, even if you just watch this movie as a standalone movie, it still doesn't make any sense. It's so confusing. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... So, yeah. And so, also, like, um, one thing I think that really, like, didn't... That, that, that The reason why people don't like it is, you know, the mask. And Cunningham went into the film saying he did not want the mask at all. Oh, really? Like, he didn't want Jason to have a mask at all? He didn't want the hockey mask, Jason. That wasn't his Jason. He wanted, like, a family movie. Like, he wanted to go back to the early on family movie, but, like, the theme of family, like, from the first movie, because it's about, like, a mother's son. Yeah. Right. 
Okay. But the thing is, too, though, so he, Cunningham is quoted as saying that Marcus came to him and said, the last thing the fans want is to see Jason going through Camp Crystal Lake chopping up teenagers again. And, of course, that that's why. <laughs> that's that, exactly what they did want. That's exactly what they did want. Um, which is why, well, we'll talk about it in a bit, but, like, the, the camp scene in this movie was, was reshoots. Like, it wasn't mm-hmm. in the original film. Well, that's actually where we're going right next. Yes, so move on. (laughs) So after killing three teens near the lake, Bill, a.k.a. Jason, strips and binds local deputy Josh, Andrew Block, in leather straps, shaves, and then possesses him via face-rapey slug kiss. Josh then attacks Diana, killing her in front of Stephen, who knocks him out a window, because it's a Friday the 13th movie, so you gotta knock a bunch of people out windows. There's like four of those parts, like four windows in this movie. (laughs) Yes. Windows exist only to be broken in this universe. (laughs) So Sheriff Ed, Billy Green Bush, arrives and, finding blood on Stephen's hands, arrests him. Literally finds blood on his hands. Yeah, there is a lot of good police work in this film. This <laughs> is not an example of that. So, uh, Diana's daughter, Jessica, Carrie Keegan, arrives for her mother's funeral with Robert Campbell, her new boyfriend, in tow. I want to point out, though, so she shows up 38 minutes into this movie. I clocked it. I don't know who, I, I think Steven's the main character, but then it's mm-hmm. like, oh, wait. Maybe she is, but she's barely in the movie. She's more like a cipher. She's there to provide connective tissue, like an object for Jason to go after. But Stephen is absolutely the main character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's because she's just part of the family. So like, yeah. like she's who he's going after. And yeah, I always read it as as uh, John LeMay's character as the main character. But yeah, it's very strange. It's an example of bad screenwriting that you would make the person who's not connected to the family in a film that's meant to be all about seeking out and killing members of the family. Okay, (laughs) I have to tell you a really, really quick anecdote. When I was in first grade, I had to write a story. And I wrote a story about me and, like, my friends were going to this town and, like, it was a ghost town and there were ghosts everywhere. Basically, in the end of the story, like, you know, we found the spell book and someone had to read the book to uh, get rid of the ghosts. This is me and, like, you know, six years old writing this, like, story. It's, like, two pages long. And my third act twist, like, because I wanted to be the main character of my own story, was I said, oh, Trace is related to, like, the the founder of the town, so he has to be the one to read the book. If he doesn't read it, it's not going to work. So when I saw this movie... It reminded me of that because they bring in that family thing where it's like, oh, only a Voorhees can kill a Voorhees. And I was like, did this guy jack my, I mean, I I would have written this like two years after this came out, but like he jacked my story. (laughs) Well, it's a pretty classical convention, right? Where it's the person is a hero or they are the center of attention because they are secretly a chosen one or a famous person and they just didn't realize it but in this film that's that's not even the person that we're following that's the funniest thing (sighs) oh dear okay so jessica arrives she's got her new boyfriend and it's this television guy and he uh yeah we'll get to him so in jail because that's where steven is because he's been (laughs) arrested for diana's murder he meets Duke, Creighton Duke, the bounty hunter, who is in jail for reasons unknown. And has a grudge against Jason for reasons unknown. And sensual hand touching. Yes. Yes. He's so gay. 
Yeah. So he fills in Stephen at a sadistic and mildly homoerotic price. So at the cost of several broken fingers, Stephen learns that Diana was Jason's sister and that only family can kill Jason or help him be reborn. And this is, I think, another reason why fans of the franchise probably do not care for this film, because where the fuck did that mythology come from? Well, honestly, it doesn't make any sense. But also the whole, like, I'm going to break a finger for some information. Why? So the only thing I could think of was that it's the excuse that Steven uses to attract Randy, his police friend's attention to say like, oh, look what this guy did. And that's how he escapes. But no. like, there are much easier ways to pull that con. I don't know. It's uh, not great. No, <laughs> you're reaching. <laughs> it, it just happens. It just happens. You you gotta go with it in this film. And he somehow beats Jason in the face with a shovel at the end of the film with those broken fingers. Oh yeah, he performs admirably with broken fingers throughout Look, the rest of this film. The script supervisor, who I believe is in charge of continuity errors in this movie, in all movies, was not Smoking hired. Out. No, they were they weren't they didn't exist. Like they, <laughs> <laughs> they were not hired. <laughs> Adam Marcus was like, script supervisor, I'll read the script. It's fine. Done. The nepotism of 23-year-olds, yes. <laughs> so Stephen escapes from jail, and he heads to the old Voorhees house, where he finds the Necronomicon. It is the actual Necronomicon it from is. the it Evil is. Dead. Same with the Bone Knife. Same with, uh, what was it? There was one the other The Deadites at the end. Yeah, I mean, that's what Adam Marcus says. He only started saying that recently. I don't yeah. know if I believe him, but the dead... That's a generous this, retcon, isn't it? <laughs> it is a very generous retcon, but the pro actual props are there. I do want to point mm -hmm. out that with Evil Dead, I counted references or... not. I'm not going to say homage, it's literally references to five other horror franchises and one like really big one to another Friday film, which I'll go over later. This is the scream of the early 90s. Yeah. It's so fucking meta. We're just drawing all these connections to horror icons left and right. But again, this came out the same year, but I think two months before Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So imagine how shitty this looked once that came out. <laughs> oh, boy. Once an oh example my. of something that didn't work quite so well. That is proto-scream. Scream came from that. It is. I, oh, I, I have to defend that one. That was my first. That was my first Freddy too. Alice, <laughs> what? In case listeners are yelling at me, I apologize. New Nightmare was ninety four, so it came out uh, fourteen months after this movie. Um, but I will side with you, Alice. New Nightmare is my third favorite nightmare movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Nobody's dissing on New Nightmare. Everybody loves New Nightmare on this. <laughs> okay, so in addition to the Necronomicon. Uh, Stephen overhears Robert, that's still the television producer, because none of these people have remarkable names or personalities, so they're very difficult to keep track of. And he's Rex Vandekamp from Desperate Housewives. I there really kept calling him Rex the entire time. <laughs> there is that, yeah. So... Uh, Stephen overhears Robert talking about a plot to goose his show's ratings using Diana's corpse, which is hidden in the basement. Yeah, because that's going to go over well on television, buddy. Hmm. Unfortunately for Robert, he is attacked and face raped by Josh, who promptly melts. A possessed Robert then attacks Jessica, but she is saved by Stephen, who runs over Robert with her car. 
When Stephen tries to tell her what's happening, she leaves him on the side of the road and drives to the police station. So one of those two reactions is appropriate. Sure. Robert somehow follows her, kills nearly everyone at the police station. Stephen then saves her again, and they drive to the diner to pick up their baby, <laughs> who is a character in this movie that everyone has forgotten about, only to discover that the baby has been abducted by Creighton Duke. Richard then kills everyone at the diner in glorious terminatory slow motion. So, Jessica abandons Stephen again. Do you sense a theme, a recurring theme going on here? Abandonment? Abandonment and then rescue. Well, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I wanted to point out to that. That baby, like, being left in a cardboard fruit carton thing for a day? Like, an entire day? Yeah. That's Ugh. child abuse right there. <laughs> The 90s, man. The 90s. Mm. So Jessica abandons Stephen again to go and meet Duke at the Voorhees house, where he gives her the baby and the Candarian dagger from the Evil Dead, as Alice mentioned. Mm -hmm. So Duke then falls through the floor onto a rebar and pierces his leg. So he's out of commission for a little bit. And this is when Sheriff Ed and Officer Randy Parker, Kip Marcus, arrive. And one of them is possessed by Jason. But who? Spoiler, it's Randy. Well, the film tells you like two seconds later. Like, they don't even draw out the suspense for this scene at all. Yeah, there's no tension. None, none at all. <laughs> so Randy shoves Sheriff Ed into Jessica so that she accidentally stabs and kills him. So I guess that's a body count in this movie. And then Stephen arrives, oh, shockingly enough, in time to save Jessica yet again. <laughs> Well, he actually saves the baby because at this point, Randy is trying to, you know, possess it as right. Jason is wont to do. So Steven slices open Randy's neck and a baby sized slug monster crawls out, falls into the basement, crawls into Diana's vag and then emerges literally seconds later as a fully grown Jason Voorhees. <laughs> I just realized something. I think the reason there may not have been a whole lot of uh, like, you know, suspense buildup is that the the slug going inside of uh aaron gray uh diana was a reshoot so it was a different actor so like aaron gray didn't even know that was a scene until many oh. years later and was oh. extremely upset about it well okay wait so joe because you watched the r-rated cut not the unrated cut did does your did your cut show the thing crawling up her pussy Jesus Trace. Um <laughs> I mean, you see it crawling towards the body, so it's evident, but no, you do not see it. That is extra footage in the unrated. Yeah, cut. you you see it like full on like wiggle its way inside her and it's gross. I mean it's gross just there's so much rape in this movie. It's really disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a gross I mean, I'll give it that. It's it, a it gross is, movie. Yeah. It's so gross. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we're almost there. Yeah. Steven battles Jason until Jessica stabs the unstoppable killing machine, and she eventually gets him in the heart. It takes her a couple of tries, because, you know, she ain't good at this. So, <laughs> as soul sparks float into the sky, a spotlight shines down on Jason is, as Jason is dragged to hell until only his iconic mask remains. After Jessica and Steven walk away, and a dog randomly wanders by. Which I thought was he was going to pee on it. I also thought that. <laughs> <laughs> would have been appropriate yeah it would have uh, been it would have been perfect <laughs> can you think of all the review headlines like this movie ends with a dog pissing on on this mask i well, piss on this movie 
Brilliant. So uh, this is the point. This is the money shot, folks. This is when we get Freddy's glove coming out of the ground and pulling the mask below the surface, thereby setting in motion 10 years of fanboy blue balls as they wait for Freddy versus Jason to arrive in 2003. The single shot that is the entire reason for the movie's existence Mm -hmm. in the first place. Pretty much. But you know what, though? That movie went on to gross over $80 million domestically, so... (laughs) Yeah, it's made a bunch... I think it was the highest grossing of the franchise. I think you're right. We're talking Freddy vs. Jason, you mean? Yeah, I I think it's... I think it's the highest grossing film in each franchise, actually. Because I was going to say maybe the yeah. remakes, but I think the re- both remakes of uh, Nightmare and yeah, uh, They Fridays. topped out at about 70. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yep. So that is Jason Goes to Hell, folks. Where... What, do we want to start with theme? Do we want to start with plot? I actually maybe want to start with the opening because it's... Pro- I think the opening is actually a really good sequence. Um, it's a Friday the 13th movie, like all the previous ones in the beginning. Mm-hmm. steroids it's basic it's like what they did with the remake except they didn't make another friday the 13th movie within it that's kind of true yeah i did okay so i was telling alice this off air before you arrived trace yeah i could not remember if i had seen this film and i realized upon watching it that i had only ever seen the opening scene up to the corner biting the heart and getting infected Gotcha. Oh, So I was watching this and thinking, oh, fuck, this is really just another generic Friday the 13th film because we got some chick doffing her top, mm-hmm. getting into the shower, and then getting murdered. And then all of a sudden, what the fuck are all these Navy Army SEAL guys doing, like, parachuting down from trees and blowing Jason the fuck up? It's because it's set in the future. Wait. No, yes. yes. They're, they're, it's set in like 2003 and they're in mm-hmm. they, like the, 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 the bridge comic, I guess, between this one sets up the whole like there's what, what was it? There was a, a task force set up for Jason. I think so. After so many times of him coming back to life, or I, I don't know. The, the the weird timeline of the Friday the 13th franchise is so weird, because I remember when I was watching, I think, Manhattan, and they're like, oh yeah, this takes place in 2000, and it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Funny how everyone in 2000 dresses like the 80s. That's actually interesting, because it was three years between Jason Takes Manhattan and Jason Goes to Hell, wasn't it? Uh, I think Manhattan was 89. This one was 93. So I think we're looking at four years. Okay, because, like, it's similar. All right, all right. I was just thinking, like, yeah. it's like maybe that's why it's set in 2003? Well, no, because, like, um, the second one is set five years after the first one, despite coming out the next year. And, like, each sequel kind of did that, where it was like, oh, it's so many yeah. years later. And because those movies were coming out like Saw once every year almost, uh, it just went really far ahead. But with the timing of this whole... Because, Joe, you said to me today, you were like, I just watched this movie like three days ago, and I don't feel like I remember a lot of what happened in it. And it's because it takes 13 minutes of the film's 90-minute runtime to get through the opening credits, which means the actual, like, movie that we're watching with Steven and the rest of the characters is 77 minutes long (laughs) with credits which is shorter than an animated disney movie i could not tell you any of these characters names (laughs) at all and i I, i've seen this movie so many times i I, and like i don't know why but i have and um don't you apologize alice don't you apologize i'm not not (laughs) apologizing for anything i there is this is better than about 90 percent of the movies i watch oh my god (laughs) 
Um, something random to I don't know how accurate it is, but I saw and this this Sean Cunningham man, I don't even know. Apparently he thought that um actors never took their cues fast enough. Like it would take them too long to like go through a door because they were too busy emoting, and that's an exact quote. Oh my god. His passive aggressive solution was to not communicate more clearly to the actors, but instead shoot at twenty two frames per second instead of twenty four. So everything feels like it's super fast. That's the reason? Yes. Oh my god. And so when they finished filming the movie, they thought they had a 90 minute film, but it was actually 80 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. I had no idea. (laughs) And then they said, "Uh, we need to beef this up. Let's do some reshoots. We need a body double of (laughs) Erin Gray. We need her badge. I I, I get it, but it's like, you're kind of a dick, Sean Cunningham. Like, just talk. Because he's he's, he's producing. He's undirected. He really is, though. Like, like, I, 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 I... Oh god, that that guy, he just he pisses me off to no end. Everything that's been happening with the with the franchise rights lately. Yeah. Like come on. It's all coming from his side. Like it is. come on. He wants that money. <sighs> but mean, let's be honest, he he may not be directing this film, but he hired a 23-year-old with what? Like one film under his belt. He's fucking directing this film. Marcus said something about how he got the job, and it's something about how he worked jobs. on what? What blowjobs? What? <laughs> well, no, surprisingly, Marcus is I, okay because his his interviews and stuff like he's very he's very nice, and he's also big on inclusion. Like you know, he he tries to include a lot of queerness, a lot of fem, female stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. female stuff, you know, whatever. A lot of people of color. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people of color. No. Yeah, he he's very good about that. Like 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 he even like he even said it in the, that the, the the big documentary on the Crystal Lake Memories. Um, like he was saying how like he saw the earlier films as inherently sexist, and mm-hmm. uh, he wanted Nothing you know true. he literally he, he said he literally said that he shot the homoerotic shaving scene for the ladies. Well, and that's why we also get more male nudity in the tent sex scene slash kill scene. Yes. Oh, also, I want to point something out since we're on horror queers. Wait, is that what we're doing? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the actor, um, the guy's girlfriend who gets uh, sliced and almost in half uh, mm-hmm. is Michelle Clooney, who was on Queer as Folk for all five seasons in the U.S. version, at least. Oh, really? is she one of the lesbians? Like not the blonde yeah. one, but the other one. Oh. Yeah, she plays Mal. I thought she looked familiar. I actually uh, thought she was going to be the final girl because she looked immediately familiar to me when I saw her. Okay, wait, wait. No, so I, I, admittedly, when I was watching this, um, I, I like looked away when he picked them up, like because they were hitchhikers. And so when he was picking, when he was driving to the campsite, I was like, wait. Why does he have these people? Was there Uber? like this isn't an Uber situation? They didn't have that back then. Why? <laughs> why does he have these people? I was because so Stephen is the nicest guy. This is your introduction to him. He still hangs out with his ex's mom at the diner. He's picking up random hitchhikers, gently ribbing them about their premarital sex and drug use, giving yeah. them rides for free. Stephen's the best, man. You want to hear another uh, little uh, slightly uncomfortable fact about this? Yes. The guy that was shooting the scene with Michelle Clooney, and I'm so sorry, I cannot remember his name off the top of my head, but, um... The guy who gets all sexy naked? Yeah, they, uh, he and Michelle Clooney had been dating, uh, prior to this, and they had broken up, like, not too long before shooting this, uh, sex scene. 
no that's awkward very well and so this is all reshoots like this is like they finished filming it's done but if you want to know why this movie is such a clusterfuck besides the fact that you had this really immature 23 year old director who it seems very nice so apparently when they were filming it was a 28 day shoot the only person who actually looked at any of the footage was the editor david handman uh, he, he worked on Sean, with sean cunningham on deep star six he edited wishmaster um also he edited a bunch of harper's island episodes Cool. I know. But no one was viewing the dailies as per normal procedure, so because they were just focused on, you know, filming, getting and moving on to the next thing. My God, low budget horror. (laughs) Nobody's looking at the dailies. Hey, don't don't pay attention to what we've actually shot. Just push through. Exactly. So most of what they had wasn't usable. Um like for the diner sequence was actually an eight minute nonstop slow motion sequence. Uh and just as a sidebar. I, I want a work print. It. I want to see a work print of this. <laughs> like that is the best fucking se- like okay. It is. The police station massacre, the diner massacre cemented this film for me. I was on the fence. I was wishy-washy about it and then those scenes happened and I was living for it. It's so good. I do love the woman getting her chin like punched in. Like that's a really cool gore effect. Everybody loves that one. Oh, and also again, another queer aspect, you know, you have Leslie Jordan in this movie, uh, for some reason. And, you know, people may know him from Will and Grace or um Sorted Lives. I did see that there was a queer reading, and I've forgotten the site that I'm on, so I apologize. But this one gentleman interpreted this as, oh, look at this butch woman who owns a diner and this tiny effeminate man they look like maybe they've settled into a marriage of convenience in this small town outside of crystal lake (laughs) and they've decided you know what if we can't be homos we should just get married and open a diner (laughs) (laughs) but i'm glad you mentioned work print joe because there is supposedly a 130 minute work print of this movie (gasps) i want the work print However, after, like, they realized what wasn't usable in this film, they only had about 45 to 50 minutes of footage. So I still want it. I want the 130 minutes. I gotta (laughs) see it. I gotta say it. So 43 minutes of the final product did come from reshoots. The storylines that were dropped were Aaron Gray, uh, her character, and the sheriff were engaged in planning their honeymoon. Yeah, you can tell that there's more stuff missing Mm -hmm. from that, not just because there's obviously something else going on in the diner when she's first introduced, but she's so clearly being set up to be a bigger character, and then they just murder her. Yes. Uh, and we'll get... Because, again, I I think they're trying to do the psycho thing, where, like, you think she's going to be the final girl, and then they kill her early, but it's like, I only knew her for two scenes, so it doesn't really matter. Even though, kudos to her, she does put up a decent fight, all she things does. considered. The Jessica and Rex Vandekamp being a, a couple, that was added in the reshoots. Yeah, because that makes no sense. He <laughs> just randomly shows up. You're like, oh, he's back. The and scene... he's dating this girl. Oh, okay. The scene when he's on the phone and he's like, yeah, I stole Diana's corpse and put it in the Voorhees house. And then I went home and I fucked her daughter. Like, what is that? That is one of those definitely. Okay, so the screenwriter was off to the side, desperately churning out lines, being like, uh, just have him say this. That'll explain it. I've, I I saw an interview with... with uh... John LeMay, you know, um, um, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, yeah. And uh, he said that uh, when he got the script, he was uh, so confused as to what was going on. And that um, <laughs> and when both. he saw the final product, he was in shock that it actually made any sense. 
I mean, it kind of does. Like, it both does and does not make any sense at all. The character motivations are so spotty. And the fact that Steven just accepts the fact that there is madness happening, you just have to kind of go with it. But at the end of the day, really, the film just boils down to Jason body hops trying to get closer to this girl and... John D. LeMay just has to protect her, and that's it. That's the thing, though, is that in theory, like it, everything that they're saying makes sense, but the fact that it comes out of nowhere, like yeah, ap- apparently Creighton Duke, like Jason, killed his wife, and that's why he has a revenge, like vendetta against him. But that's not in the movie, and even the fact that you you cast this. Well, I don't know if he was a famous actor at the time, because, of course, I I recognized him immediately. Like, oh, Jesus, that's X from the X-Files. But that would have been many years after this. Actually, same year. Oh, is it? 93, I think, is the first season of X-Files. Oh, well, good for him. Maybe 92? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a good year. It's definitely around the same. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But... I mean, it would make sense, right, to have Jessica be your final girl because she is who Jason is after. And it would make sense to have your bounty hunter be the person who's protecting her because he's armed with all the knowledge. And instead, we just have the most generic white guy <laughs> yeah. just introduced like, in the middle. Like, you okay. can get rid of him and the baby. And For sure. it yeah. cuts out a lot of the fat. And then you can devote more time to Duke and Jessica, I guess. Yeah. Just make this the Terminator remake that you so clearly want it to be. I guess, yeah, it came out the year after T2, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Because it's an unstoppable killing machine that's coming after a woman and her baby so that he can be reborn into the future. Yeah, another weird thing about this is, like, 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 like it's so weird because, like, Adam Marcus in interviews has said that they had, they had come up with the idea for the whole Hell's Assassin thing. Yeah. And then, then that was the reason that he was jumping from body to body. I'm like, sorry, what is the Hell's Assassin? So you know how um, it, it works into the Freddy mythos? Uh, you know, Freddy is one of Hell's Assassins as per, like, the sixth movie, Freddy's Dead, you know? Yeah, like, but it, but in dreams. And and Jason's the assassin on Earth. Oh my yeah, god, I guess. And what? His, and, his, <laughs> and his favorite... If this demon or hell's assassin or whatever it is, favorite form is just hockey face man. <laughs> oh my god, that is so dumb. But that's why no, but that's why <laughs> at, at the end though, like when the souls are coming out of, of Jason, which again that's never been a thing before, the same thing kind of happens in Freddy's Dead when it's like, oh, like the soul I mean but that makes kind of I mean, I don't think Freddy's Dead's a good movie, but that makes a bit of sense with the mythology. Or it's just New Line being like, Hey, we've got this makeup from this other movie. Can we just <laughs> repurpose this? Because our budget is small. I do like the interpretation where if you believe Marcus and that this is a canonical crossover with the Evil Dead, that that suddenly explains that Jason is like a deadite and those are other deadites who are coming up to like bring him back to hell, which is where they all reside. I'm like, wow, buddy. Just wow. He is a dumb deadite. <laughs> Like, how many different ways can we push this meat through the meat grinder to try to make it sense? Well, speaking of pushing meat through the meat grinder, um, mm. that, the, when when the uh, when he first possesses the mortician and he like the other guy comes in who is actually uh, Lori, it's one of the screenwriters, and he like pushes his face through the grates on the examination table. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, that's really good. 
Actually, can we just talk about the gore? Because that's, I think, one of the best-selling features of this film. Yeah, sure. I agree. That's one of the reasons I came back to it so much, I think. KNB did a really good job. Or was it just Greg Nicotero? I I can't remember. I know it's, it's one of them. But um, yeah, like it's really, really good. Like there, there was also unused um stuff. Like there was like some undead killer baby thing that was supposed to be used in the end sequence. Um, and then they hired like they hired like an amputee and made like a body cast. Like oh, they really? had an entire suit for this guy, and they, there's like there's pictures of it. I don't know if there was footage of it shot or anything. Yeah, man. But... <laughs> it's about hundred and twenty minute it's... work print. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, like, there's a lot of gooiness, and like, that—that's the thing. This movie's gooey. It's—it's it's mm-hmm. bloody, gooey. but it's yeah. very gooey. Down, like, down to the black heart that the mortician eats. That thing looks juicier than a hamburger. Yeah, fruit cocktail and black food coloring, by the way. Mm. Disgusting. Together at last. Yeah, you've got yeah, you've got your face through the grate. There's uh, the I, I guess really, if you want to go into it, the the body melt. Oh, that was good. That's probably my second favorite body melt after Hellraiser. So that was my Hellraiser homage. The Necronomicon's Evil Dead. There's yep. a part when Steven looks over the window whenever Jason gets thrown out. And like, oh, he looks over. Oop, his body's gone. That's Halloween. I think uh, Jessica also mentions that she, when she kicks him out of the car at the police station, she says that she left him by the Myers house. Oh my god. Ooh. Steven being in jail is very reminiscent of part six when Tommy Jarvis gets arrested um, and is in jail for like a whole like act that when Creighton Duke uses the line, uh, 500 grand is my fee. And for that, you get the mask, the machete, the whole damn thing or whatever. That's Quint from Jaws. Yeah. And then the last one is the thing. When the thing's crawling out of his neck, immediately I was like, oh, it's just like in the thing when the head comes off and, uh, you know, the, the it grows, grows legs. But then... In the basement is a box, a crate, that says Arctic Expedition Julia Carpenter. (laughs) Which which I love, because they were putting so much attention into little details, little homages and connections to other horror films, but they couldn't spend some fucking time on the script? Yeah. Like... Ladies and gentlemen of the production crew, get your shit together. I mean, I wish I had just made a list of the things that don't make sense. One thing Erin Gray said in an, in an interview um, was that she noticed that everybody on set was under the age of about 25, and she was the oldest person on set at the time. Oh, dear. That <sighs> doesn't bode well, does it? I mean, even listening to their commentary, like, they... Marcus and Lori are having fun, but, like, anytime something happens where it doesn't make sense, they're like, yeah, I don't know. Like, we were broke. Like, we were just happy to go to craft services and get food. And, like, Lori's like, yeah, even when I wasn't, like, supposed to be on set, I would come just to get food from craft services. Services. This sounds like a, a couple of college stoners that just happened to stumble into making a massive franchise film. And they're like, well, there was catering. There was a lot of food. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh boy but that's the thing is i I, granted that they recorded the commentary in 04 so it's you know 11 years distance from this movie and all the shit they got for it and they're aware they're aware that most people don't like this movie so i think that yeah they're just like fuck it like we're just gonna talk about how much fun we had making it because they did seem to have fun but they don't give two shits about what happens (laughs) but here's the thing if you divorce this film from the friday from the friday franchise 
I mean, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you've got reasonable acting. Like, it's fine. People are passable. You've uh-huh. got great gore. You've got a couple of really standout set pieces. Kane Hodder calling himself a pussy was pretty funny, too. <laughs> like, there's a lot to like in this film. I uh, I feel like this film is due for a renaissance if people can just let their feelings about the lack of Jason or the weird mythology elements go. I say that knowing that I'm also someone who does not give two shits about the mythology or the Jasonness of it. I still enjoy it. Like I, I mean, I still come back to it. I watch it. I, I wouldn't say it's in my top five Jason movies, but you know. Oh. <laughs> that's damning it with faith praise <laughs> it has its charms it has its charms yes. oh come on trace you have talked repeatedly about liking the most garbagey shit movies on this podcast well, if the movies have gore and they're kind of funny spoiler alert there's an episode that we pre-recorded that's coming up in a couple of weeks that is just as much hot garbage as this movie and you fall over yourself with praise um <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about, but I don't find this movie as entertaining or funny as that movie. I don't know, man. I think you got to lean into the weird sense of humor that this film has. I mean, those army dudes parachuting out of the trees and basically fuck yaying each other. <laughs> no, in the actually, sequence, like, no, come on. My, 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 my favorite visual gag, though, was um the, the, the toweled fbi agent like doing like this dive over some barriers and like flipping to get out of the way of jason and all the grenades and shit (laughs) all well the towel stays on perfectly on it's amazing it is truly amazing i love how the fbi also had like they knew they were like look we got to send this hot agent in there and she has to get naked and then it's the miscongeniality (laughs) opening they're like okay where's the sandra bullock of 1993 send her in there (laughs) <laughs> but, but yeah, you got that's how you lure Jason out. You got to have all of the tropes all at once right in front just to lure him to It's to like her be blown to pieces, I guess. Her nipples are like releasing this frequency that only serial killers can hear and it's like once they're exposed, it like draws them closer and closer. Exactly, just like the not that them deciding not to use the condom in the sex scene in the woods. I mean, no, that that Thing I thought that was genuinely funny. Like th- there are some commentary. Oh, things, it's hilarious! Yeah, on how stupid the franchise is and like the tropes. Yeah, I, I, I had forgotten how meta this movie was. Most of it, I would argue, isn't super successful, but a, like a good, a good chunk of it is. I think it's an early stab at it. Yeah, it's an early stab yeah, at it for sure. An early stab. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and and that that's where that's where that's where Scream Two gets its little in movie movie. Oh, one hundred percent. Took a stab at it. I did want to point out too, because y'all had mentioned, you know, I, I, we not y'all, we had mentioned, you know, oh, like Marcus is like you know really inclusive and whatever. Did y'all read about the shit with um the girl who plays Jessica and how her shower scene, like she wasn't told she had to be nude for it, and he basically like forced her to. Uh, oh shit, no, no. that sucks. So that, su- that's terrible. Supposedly he didn't tell her, and he says that 
like he did. So wait, so what'd he do? Like, just take your clothes off. I'm just going to put the lens cap over the camera. We're not going to film. Don't worry. Don't worry. So basically she wore a flesh colored bathing suit bottom and Madonna like comb bra, a Madonna like comb bra with Dixie cups instead of cones. <laughs> the water was so hot though that she was literally crying from pain and she thought it was because oh my God. Marcus was mad about, oh. about the nudity. She complained to her agent, who then argued with everyone in production. Keegan and um, Marcus became enemies. Uh, she walked off the set, even though they were mere days, days away from rapping. So Sean Cunningham had to take the movie away from Marcus, came in to direct the final couple of days, which was the only way they could get that actress to come back. Jeez. Oh my goodness. That, that, like, she, she plays it off as having, like, the funnest time in the, in the... The documentary, the Crystal Lake Memories. That's 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 oh, jeez. Well, but we've seen people lie on these retrospective documentaries because yeah, well, if yeah. you look at how Mark Patton talks about Nightmare Two, he also doesn't oh, seem to have yeah. a lot of bad feelings. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, we know how that turned out. Well, because they're getting paid for those. <laughs> Just, yeah, sure, right. Don't buy like the hand. That's it makes sense why, but like, ooh. Jeez. So basically what we're hearing is that there's a bunch of fun, homoerotic, and or queer elements in this film, and that the women were treated like garbage. Well, that's yes. So n- that's a good transition, Sounds though. Accurate. Do y'all want to talk about all the queer shit? Yes. Yeah. Because what the fuck is oh, it doing in here? I love it. It's delicious. It makes no sense. It's like empty calorie gay content. I... <laughs> the... His only reason for including the leather shaving scene is that he was, yeah, he was trying to be more inclusive, but... But why? (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, everyone else just gets attacked, and the worm comes out, and you're like, it's a bit face rapey. Here, you've got a whole elaborate setup. But I have a theory. So, does anyone else that gets possessed have facial hair? Not that I can remember. So that was my thing. I think that maybe the slug just doesn't like hair. So. Wow. That is a body shaming slug. It's not going to do well in the gay community. (laughs) Do we ever see Jason shaving? Because whenever the mask comes off, he is clean shaven. He is. Very good point. So. (laughs) Yeah. So even the way that scene ends. I mean. Can you imagine being in the theaters in 1993 and, like, this scene just happens? No. Like, the homo panic would be real. But he's strapped down with, you know, leather straps. He's getting shaved. The scene goes on for quite a bit. And then the end of the scene, though, is the mortician, like, coming to the camera with an open mouth kissy face. Mm -hmm. So you don't even see the slugging. You just see... Like, they're going to kiss. So that's what you think is about to happen, because I think at this point you don't know there's a slug. Uh, Are we sure it's his face? I, I think it's like a close-up of the mouth with the slug coming out. I, I don't okay. think you see a slug. Okay, all right, that's, I, I, I cannot remember seeing a slug in there, and then you just made me think, like, is it his face? I can't recall. But I do think it's funny that, I mean, A, we're... We're sort of lauding this as though it's a good thing that there's all this gay content in here. But if you think about it, the horror in in this moment oh. is actually that a man would put his face near another man. Because think of the things that could happen. Yeah. A fucking slug could come out. Well, I mean, but they, that's the thing. They, they don't show the slug in this scene. Like, it, it's his face coming towards the camera and basically the camera goes into his mouth and that it blacks out from that. And it's just like... 
what? Actually, listeners, if y'all saw this in theaters in 93, please let us know what the reactions were, be it yours or people around you, because I am dying to know. I must know. I gotta know. So there's a lot of overt queer elements in here, but the thing that struck me thinking about this in preparation to record was there's a very strict gender line. Like, Jason only goes after other men for this unless he's trying to get to Jessica or the baby, right? But we never really even see him get that close to them to do that. And I don't know if the process would have been different. Well, I guess we see him try to attack Diana, and that's when Stephen bursts in. Well, yeah, but you do get that shot of the slug coming out of his mouth, which very reminiscent, by the way, of Nightmare 2, when Mark Patton gets, like, the Freddy tongue when he's um, about to have, well, about to not have sex with Meryl Streep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not Meryl, yeah. Not Meryl. But she still looks like not Meryl. Yeah, she does. <laughs> but don't you think it's weird? Like so when the aftermath of the diner scene happened, I was certain that Vicky was gonna be the one who would turn up with the slug in her mouth for the f- mm-hmm. for the finale. And then instead it's another man. Like, do you think Jason only goes for boys? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I think this might be part of uh, Marcus's inclusivity thing, though, because he had thought the films were sexist, so he was trying to turn it on to men. But I see your point. So then now we have this <laughs> this total like repositioning of a very famous slasher of the 80s as... Jason's a, a big homo. A That's gay man. <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? But then the fear becomes, oh, wow, you know men watch out because if another man tries to kiss you he could be trying to possess you and turn you into a homicidal killer and then liquefy your body and he's going to hell i mean and he's going to hell it was the 90s so (laughs) maybe yeah i mean like we're we're like you know post aids crisis i mean like it's still like a fear but it's not you know 1985 yes the bigger fear is a black man let's put him into jail for sure Oh, okay. I was surprised that Duke was in. Cause I, 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 for some reason, again, I remembered him being a bigger presence in this film. But I think it's because his lines are so stupid. Well, and he's obviously having a ton of fun <laughs> playing the role. So he's a memorable. He refused character. to play the role without the cowboy getup, which I love. Because again, why? Why not? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, why not? That that's your tagline for this movie. <laughs> why not? Jason goes to Jason hell goes to Final hell. Friday. Why, why not? not? <laughs> why the fuck not? No, no, no. no. Can, all right, so we'll we'll move on to the um the, the the hand caressing in a minute. But can we please talk about the hot dog line? <laughs> <laughs> the hot dog through a donut was it? Okay, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when I say Jason Voorhees? George, Jason Voorhees. Well, I asked George Voorhees, (laughs) Jason's younger brother. He's a sex maniac. He talks about hot dogs and donuts all the time. We've already got a hidden sister, so why not a hidden brother? Exactly. I mean... Y'all, I can forget some continuity shit, but this hidden sister thing, I, whatever. <laughs> but no, so he responds, well, that makes me think of a little girl in a pink dress sticking a hot dog through a donut. What? 
Okay, do we think that that was scripted or ad-lib? I have no idea. I have no idea. All I know is that from all I've heard in interviews and any and, and things and stuff I've read that is that they were just trying to one-up each other in weirdness and making each other laugh the entire time. So maybe it was an ad-lib. Who knows? Let's Let's pretend that it was scripted. What <laughs> do you think they're trying to say? <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, what it is, is it's talking about I... the sexualization of children traits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's that Creighton Duke is a pedophile. But now we know where Mean Girls gets it from, right? Yeah. <laughs> or you know oh man I, I i really missed an opportunity at the intro of this episode to say that i wanted to take a big old mango sized crap on your face which is a line in this movie by the way yeah uh please don't talk to me about your grinder profile thank you <laughs> <laughs> so yeah this hand caressing it's so sensual it is it it's is so loving do you think that it's subtle enough that people didn't notice it because i feel like we all picked up on it immediately but do you think there was anybody who watched us and just thought that's weird hmm. i know because I, <laughs> no. I, it's very overt but the camera I, I holds know. on I, it I can't, it's it is a protracted hold you're right but part of it is because he's going to break the finger, right? So he's trying to get a, a hold on it. No, but, but he's not trying to get a hold. He's literally, like, stroking his hand. Before the finger gets broken. Yes, correct. And he doesn't pull away. He just lets the hand caressing happen. Even though he's married to Jason's, what is it, it would be granddaughter. Niece? Niece? No, yeah, you're right, niece. niece? Yeah, because Diana niece. is I Jason's have, sister. Oh, I can't even tell the family stuff going on with this. <laughs> well, also because Jason knows. They wanted it to have family stuff in it, and it just... I like I and I, I I'm even confused about like how the family trees work in here. Well, that just reeks oh, of... God. That just reeks of Halloween bullshit to me. Where they said, oh, well, let's just introduce <laughs> some random family member that we can have our killer go after. Well, yeah, Didn't remember on this... For that other yeah. one? Yeah, it's because like that, that's what they do in yeah Halloween. They they bring in the cult of Thorn. It's like, well, this isn't working, so let's bring in a cult. Sure, um, and a niece that he's telepathically connected to. Uh, cool, we'll do that too. Well, he seems to be telepathically connected to them because he seems to know exactly how to find them at all times. Well, also Creighton Duke knows about the family connection, and. Yeah. Can we also talk about the the knife that becomes a magic sword whenever it whenever Jessica <laughs> holds it? <laughs> uh, this is so stupid. Yeah, she's uh, she's a powerful lady, Trace. I mean, y'all, I should have I should have made a list of everything in this movie that makes no sense, and I could just read them off, and that would be literally the whole episode. Well, this is why we are doing this as our introduction to eight weeks of motherfucking camp, because this movie is nonsense. It doesn't make a lick of sense, and it seems to revel in that. Okay, so then this is where we're going into... Okay, if we're going to talk about camp... This is where we go into intention intentionality? Is that the word? Is that a word? It'll work, yeah. Sure. We'll say that. Sure, why not? <laughs> I mean, I I think your comment about stoners just working behind the camera is more apt. So it was intentional in that 
they were stoned just filming things. Or they just didn't give a shit, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They thought, okay, you know what? We've got $3 million to piss around in this sandbox with. We know we need to do the mask. We know that we need to break a few windows. <laughs> we, <laughs> you know, we we need a few gory kills, which I think they probably spent the majority of their time working on the FX for a lot of the head trauma that goes on in this film. A lot of the goriest stuff is not in that rated version. I mean, Joe, because you... Had... So you don't see Vicky's head spurt when she gets mm-hmm. it crushed. You do see the police officers get their heads whacked together. Mm-hmm. So that's enjoyable. But you don't see Queer's Folk Lady uh, get split in half while she's yeah. straddling that guy. That was the most egregious omission for me. The fact that I was denied that in the R-rated cut was unforgivable that is unforgivable completely because that is a good fucking kill like no when you sent me the screen caps i was legit mad that part is all practical yeah nice they had i think they had to build two body casts for her one to fall to the left one to fall to the right (laughs) (laughs) oh maybe they maybe they needed more because you had to have the full body cast first before it goes through yeah i think they probably had one for when she gets pierced right yeah jason comes just as she comes yep (laughs) oh jason he's like the coitus interruptus of well or would we say michael is the bigger buzzkill he's like no they're both such boner killers no jason jason has like shoved a spear through a couple as they're fucking multiple times i think right probably yeah 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 Jeez, these boys, they just need to get laid. I was thinking of Kevin Bacon, but that's Pamela Voorhees, don't worry about it. Oh yeah, that right. is true. Uh, but yeah, he gets speared post-coitus, yeah, that is true. Or, um, I guess arrowed. But it is post-coitus, arrowed. yeah. Yeah, it's post. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're a kill-by-kill listener, bunked. So, alright, uh, uh, right. <laughs> going back to intentionality, which if that's not a word, I've just coined it, so, you know, go with it. Let the residuals come in. They wanted something different in this movie. And Cunningham acts embarrassed about this movie. Like, he didn't know what was going on. And I'm like, you're the producer. What were you doing when they were filming this movie? He has full control. Yeah. (laughs) Like, if you think about it in Freddy vs. Jason, like, like Wes Craven didn't have full control of what happened to Freddy at the end of that movie. Therefore, I think that's why Jason is the one that ultimately, you know quote-unquote wins is because sean s cunningham's a producer on that oh. how could his baby or rather you know his money-making baby because mm-hmm. uh, like he didn't make the hockey face man so yeah i don't know that's thought no let's be real he either didn't know because he had fucked off or he knew exactly what was going on, and he's <laughs> exercising his plausible deniability and saying, I don't know. He probably had a lot of cocaine left over from the 80s that he had stockpiled for, like, you know, <laughs> since it ended. Because that's, that's what happened. When the 90s hit, all the cocaine went away. So if you didn't have any, then you were fucked. So they just, like, stockpiled it. Oh, he was in withdrawal then. <laughs> no, but he, he, he had a stash. And so when they were like, oh, we're going to make a Jason movie in the 90s, he was like, oh, good. I can break out my cocaine and live out my glory days of the 80s. So he just sat in his trailer all day <laughs> just doing cocaine. <laughs> Adam comes in. Uh, Sean, 
I've got an idea for this character. It's going to be... That's great. That's great. Do it. Do it. Just do it. Okay. Ah. Cool. Guys, we got the green light on George Voorhees. We're good to go. (laughs) Write him in. And and give me something (sighs) about a girl and a hot dog and a donut in there as well. I just came from catering and I was smoking a J and I got really hungry. Wait, that's what it was. No, there was a little girl sticking a hot dog through a donut at craft services, and Creighton Duke was probably looking at that when they were filming the scene, and that's what he said. That's why he said it. <laughs> we figured it out. We've cracked the code. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sean Cunningham. We yeah. finally figured it out. We finally did it. Good job, guys. Ah, the mysteries have been unlocked. Okay. Do you, want, do you have anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up with our final thoughts in the film? I think one of the things that I will highlight as a positive in this film, and I'm going to reference Kill by Kill again because they brought it up a couple of times. One of the things that seems to happen, particularly in both the Friday as well as the Nightmare franchises, is that every successive film treats the events of the previous film like it's myth and legend and they've completely forgotten about how this serial killer who is active and murdered you know dozens of children works so i really appreciated that this film just acknowledges that jason is a serial killer they know about him and we don't have to spend a lot of time dancing around the fact that he's out there murdering people by the batch so I kind of appreciated that candidness in this film. Yeah, I got one last thing, um, which is a question for you two. Okay. Do you know who's wearing the Freddy glove at the end of the movie? Oh, I looked it up. Is it Potter? It's Kane. Kane's the only person to play both Jason and Freddy. (laughs) Does that mean he provides the laugh as well? I don't know. That probably was stock just at the time. That, That is my only guess i do not know sean sean get out of your coke coma we need the laugh track from the new line vaults uh you know where's robert englund's laugh we need that for the final demo i actually do have a question (laughs) for y'all and alice your opinion might be more might be better just say it valid she's a credential person unlike well (laughs) just just with this franchise because all right so y'all know there are a lot of people of fans of this franchise like really hardcore ones who feel very strongly about oh kane hodder is jason like kane hodder gives the best performance as jason Mm. there have been a number of actors to play him i mean i know kane hodder i know um ken kersinger did um freddy versus jason uh, and then there was uh, Derek Mears for the remake. I don't remember anyone before Kane Hodder. Ken Kersinger is also in Friday the 13th uh, Part 8. He's the dude who gets thrown into the uh, mirror in the beginning of the New York sequence. Where they're oh, like, there's a serial killer chasing after us. Yeah, same guy. Did not know that. But do y'all subscribe to the theory that it really matters who plays Jason? I personally prefer Kane Hodder however I do like all of the other ones I mean like you've got you know like like CJ Graham did a great job in six you've got Ted White in four especially amazing I think that's what's funny to me too is that you know I mean I I do think Kane Hodder is a really good Jason but you forget that he's only in seven eight nine and ten he's not in like all of these movies his presence, though, yeah. His presence is very intimidating, even... It's at, the physicality know. of it, right? Because I know that people mm-hmm. have critiqued the way that Michael moves in Halloween 
H4O or whatever you want to call it, where they said, you know, the the person that they cast for it doesn't have the same kind of lumbering motions that he has in the first couple of Carpenter films. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what? people have a bit more of a No, did I fuck that up? Sorry, just Carpenter only directed the first one and he wrote the second one. Fair. Okay. The Carpenter related early ones then? Okay. Is that? Sure. The Carpenter adjacent. There we go. Thank you, Alice. But I feel like one of the things that fans really gravitate to is the physicality, particularly in the non-speaking roles, right? Because the only way that these actors can convey any kind of emotion or presence is it's all through the way that they move and the way that they toss people and they burst through doors and windows and stab people. So... I think at the end of the day, that's maybe one of the things that people like more about the others. I don't know. Yeah, it's the it's the whole like the whole way he breathes with his shoulders and like how he'll turn like part of his body before turning his head and stuff like that. Yeah. Or turning his head before the rest of his body or it's one of the two. And he's really embraced the Phantom. And I mean, like you're right. It's all about the physicality. I I ultimately don't really think it matters. I don't have a big so preference. Much. I know, I know. I'm going to have all these Friday heads. What, what, what would we call a Friday 13 fan? I don't know. But I do like... I mean, again, Kane Hodder's barely in this movie. He's in oh, like, yeah. maybe a combined 10-minute screen time. The beginning and the ending, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. He's the only holdover from the Paramount days, too. Yeah, that's true. He's seen both sides of the studios. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's... I, I just, I, I've, I've always found that interesting when fans get up in arms about who's playing Jason. You know, it's like, eh, I mean, it doesn't really affect the quality of the movie. <laughs> I mean, there's probably bigger and better fish to fry, but at the end of the day, as we've discussed several times, Trace, horror fans do love to get uppity about weird details like the mask like the actor who plays the killer it's like never mind the script is total garbage but i know you know the director's a 23 year old who's more interested in craft services but sure yeah <laughs> just focus on kane hotter oh <laughs> uh, god you're so right I, I yeah we've talked about the mask shit on some episode before i don't know if it was scream a resurrection one. oh scream resurrection oh fuck fuck me god damn it okay <laughs> my final verdict i think this film is a like I said at the beginning, it's an ambitious failure. It's a mess. It makes no fucking sense. It is stupid. It is poorly made. But it is entertaining. And it has good practical effects. <laughs> yeah, it, it has it has certain qualities that are lovable. Yeah, yes. I agree. Yes, it is the redheaded stepchild of the Friday franchise. That in part five, because that's also kind of the one that people like to, you know, want to give away. Which one is that? That's the one where Jason's not actually in it. Oh, yes. Okay. But it's also, I will say, I used to be a Defender of Five, and then on my my marathon, I was shocked at how bad it actually was. And it's actually my least favorite film in the franchise. Yeah, that one doesn't make a lick of yep. sense either. I mean, it makes... I like Jason X more than I like the fifth one. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that for sure. Oh, Jason oh. X is in my like top five for me. Yeah. <laughs> Magnet... Oh, for sure. You're Magnet right. tits for days. Come on, people. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the nipples, Ugh. the flying nipples. It's so, so good. Okay, <laughs> uh, you two ready for a game? I'm ready. Okay. Okay. So, if you were a studio executive with ten million dollars in change and you had the rights, 
which dormant franchise would you order an off-brand installment of? And if you're feeling creative, what would that look like? So basically, we talked about how this is a Friday film that's not really a Friday film because it's just filled with so many wackadoodle details. So if you could do a version like this for one other franchise, what would it be and what would it look like? I know exactly the one I want. Oh my god, okay. it's controversial as hell. Do it. Sleepaway Camp. (sighs) Okay. And do you have an idea in mind of what, what that would look like? I don't know. Um, <laughs> would she still be trans? See. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you would. You'd have to retcon that. You you want to have that in there? Mm-hmm. I, that's the only way I'd ever do it. Like there would be no other way. Um, like that would be that would be first thing to that, to happen. Um, I don't know. Gender conversion camp. Ooh, it'd be interesting to yeah do do the film and have it set between the end of the first sleepaway camp and then when she gets out of the so-called psych ward for number two right yeah she does she does get out of the psych ward in the second one and she talks about having you know bottom surgery and all that mm-hmm. and that she's all she's all you know good now and killing everybody yeah uh Random question: Do do you enjoy those movies? Personally, yeah, I do. Um, uh, as as person, just myself, um, I, I I do I do not recommend them to people normally. Um, <laughs> or but or it's myself, like watch I, these, but there's a caveat. <laughs> yeah, I uh I, I like to watch it sort of as a revenge fantasy sometimes because interesting. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you treat a trans girl so bad, you know, you, she, she's she's going to snap eventually. <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially if you've got a pot full of hot dogs. She's going to end you oh badly. I, I really That's enjoy right. the sequels. I think the sequels are really fun. I don't love the first one as much as others, but the sequels are a hoot. I love them. They're great. <laughs> well, I mean, arguably the second and third film are the off-brand for that franchise because they're right. just so different. But yeah, okay. they are so over the top and crazy. Yeah, totally. I mean, the first one is campy, obviously, but I think the second and third, the sequels really barrel it in. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it like in the beginning of the third movie, it literally says Angela's back, spray painted onto the building after the bus pulls away for her going to camp. Like, <laughs> it's just intentionally there. Yes, yeah. It's intentionally campy. Those are those would be good ones for you to put on. <laughs> Too true. Yeah. Oh, there was no shortage of films to fill this block. <laughs> oh God. Oh, I bet. Uh, okay, uh, Trace. So uh, mine's, mine's it's kind of a cheat, I think, because it is dormant in its current iteration, but there might be a movie and there might be a Netflix series coming out, but I was going to say the Resident Evil franchise. Yeah. It's done. So and done. anyone who's seen those movies and pl- or played the games knows that they are not really anything like the games in tone. So <laughs> so your off-brand installment would be one that to, follows to go, the games? <laughs> to, to go back to the, to the brand of the games? Yeah. Uh, that would be it. And I'd love to see an, an, a, like an, an adaptation of the, the actual first game with some like gothic horror. You get those 50s horror movie elements. Like, Me too. Yes. Uh, you, by the way, you can find Romero's script for it. It was like from 1998, I think. It's online, like, available to find. It is very close to the first game and brings in elements of the second game yeah there are some very questionable choices extremely 
Oh, so you read it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, elaborate for people who haven't. Uh, I was No, I mean, like, just some random things. Like, Chris Redfield's now Native American, which is fine, but it doesn't really play a part of, like, it doesn't play any like, part, except that he's really into eagles. He bird watches. Oh, my God. Chris and Jill are in a relationship, and Chris is not in STARS, the Special Tactics and Rescue Force group. Uh, Jill is, and when she gets called away after they fuck, uh, he follows her into the mansion. <laughs> so he's like a stalker, <laughs> kinda. But you know, they, they a lot you of the creatures from the uh, from the games are there. You've got your killer sharks. You've got your plant forty two. You've got your zombies. Your zombie dogs. Um, the tyrants in there. Like it's very representative. But it, I can see why they didn't go for it. And I do like the first one that we got, even though it's more of like a prequel to the games. But I, I would love to see Romero's script, like, put on screen. But apparently, Johan Roberts, who's doing 47... Who did 47 Meters Down, both movies, and um, The Strangers 2, is working on a Resident Evil movie. So, nice. we'll see. And for those of you keeping track at home with your Trace Bingo card, he did not say it bothers me, and he didn't talk about Lizzie McGuire, but there's that Resident Evil slot for you. So. I know. But I didn't rank the movies this time. <laughs> Thank God. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Joe, what's yours? So mine would probably be Nightmare on Elm Street because it's my favorite of the franchises. <laughs> and I would like to see a nightmare film that doesn't have Freddy in it at all. It just follows the traumatic results of one of the films. So like the aftermath where the kids have to pick their lives up or the parents realize that they are hot garbage people and all of their children have been murdered. All right. I'm into that. Yeah, probably more of a drama than a horror <laughs> film, but yeah. That's I think okay. It could be interesting. No, that, that's yeah. you changing it up, like revamping it. Yeah. That came to me while I was doing Coke with Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Lord. Okay. So I think that'll wrap up our conversation of Jason Goes to Hell. Before we announce what we're covering next week, Alice, this is your turn to plug away. What do you want to promote? Well, um,. I have a um, a podcast with the Collinsport Historical Society called uh, My Drawing Room with Alice Collins, where we talk about Dark Shadows, Ooh. or rather, I talk about Dark Shadows. There's, it's a it was a big podcast at the beginning, but now it's being split up into little chunks and being released individually. So oh. that's I've got my own there. Oh, um, that's kind of fun. Uh, yeah. I have two really great articles that I think people should check out in a uh, zine called uh, Film and Fishnets. Oh, yeah. And um, one of them is specifically about the barrier gaze trope. And I found Ooh. the uh, cinematic origin of the trope itself. And I'm, I, like, I went through the first 10 pages of Google and I didn't find anybody who was talking about it. So I put it in there. Hmm. Don't say anything more. Make people go read it. Yeah, maybe yeah, make people go read that yeah. shit. <laughs> and then uh, I am staff writer at Infinite Frontiers for online, um, and I uh, am also a staff writer at the uh, Joe Bob Briggs fanzine. And um, of course, my bloody disgusting editorial, Trapped by Gender, which um, should be coming out a little more frequently. Okay. Oh, now it's been a little hectic for me, so. Yeah, freelancing is tough, you know? You you still have a life, and sometimes some of us have day jobs, and we don't have time to do everything. Was that a dig at me? 
No, <laughs> I I was defending myself because I don't I don't write as many editorials and stuff anymore because I'm just busy because it's yeah. podcast and my job. But yeah, please go read her because you've written two articles. One was um on Alien and one was uh your introductory article. Just an intro to my section. Yeah, I my love next that. Alien one, one is about Rocky Horror. Oh, see, Ooh, there you go. Another good example of camp. After today's news, I have to make an amendment. Uh, Fox pulled the rights for yes. indie theaters to uh, use copies of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <gasps> oh, so so we can't yeah. get any midnight screenings of Rocky Horror? You can get midnight screenings at theaters that have deals with Disney yeah. or uh, <laughs> are willing to pay an exorbitant amount of money to Disney to do so. Yeah. Oh, God. So just for anybody who's out there thinking, oh, my God, I'm so excited about all these shows that are going to be dropping on Disney Plus on November 12th. What? Yeah. Some of it's great, but then Disney owning all this shit and then being able to close the purse strings and throw shit into the vaults means... Yeah, you don't get to watch Die Hard at Christmas anymore. <laughs> you can't do a Die Hard Home Alone Christmas double feature anymore. Yeah. <sighs> well. You couldn't do it. Also, one thing I want to point out is that um, notice they waited to have this news come out after D23. Yep, they're trying to buy our silence. <laughs> they want to own the theaters. They want to where they want to own where you go see the movies. Well, this is depressing as fuck. So <laughs> moving I'm away. So from... sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. More cocaine. Not... More cocaine. Over More here. Co- <laughs> g- give me the cocaine. Uh, George, George Voorhees, come over here with the coke. Well, um, I I did want to plug one of my. <laughs> Uh, I did want to play one of my podcast appearances recently. Um, I did guest star on the No Excuses podcast. Um, that was with former ho- uh, Horror Queers host Jenny Nolf, who uh, listeners may remember from our Fatal Frame episode, uh, and her co-host Mike Shep, where basically um, they're both cinephiles, but they have very different tastes in movies. So every episode, um, one of them show- makes the other one watch one of their favorite movies. And in this case, Mike made Jenny watch Showgirls for the first time, and I got yes. to guest on it. So good. It was very fun. It was uh, a wine drinking episode for me. Oh, and if y'all are familiar with my drinking episodes, you'll know that I'm particularly profane. So <laughs> go listen to that. It's the No Excuses podcast, and it is on Showgirls. If you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Trace Thurman. I am at B still on my remote. That's the letter B. And uh, Alice, I don't think you said your Twitter handle. Do you want to plug your Twitter? Yeah, uh, I am at Vamp Alley, A-L-Y. And uh, I also have a website uh, launching soon, but it currently just directs to my Twitter, which will be yourhorrortran.com. Ooh, nice. Yay! If you're tweeting out the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag horrorqueers in your tweets, or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com, or check out our Facebook page. If you want to, go to iTunes, leave us a rating or a review. One or the other is great. Uh, if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like, hmm, what have we dropped recently? Oh, we dropped an episode on It Chapter 2 this week, and next week we'll have one on Rob Zombie's Three from Hell. There's a lot of Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Stephen King shit going on right now. Joe, what are we covering next week for week two of camp? All right. Well, we've we've mentioned him a couple times on the podcast tonight. We're going to be going back to the sweet horror spot of Wes Craven, but we're not talking about one of his better films. Oh, no. No, no. We're going to be talking about his shitty werewolf film, Cursed. And oh, I'm so excited. 
It's got one of the best werewolf scenes ever. It does. No, it totally <laughs> it's does. It's got one of the best werewolf. I'm not going to say it. I'm just saying he burst through a window too. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, the, and everyone, it watch the unrated version. The unrated version, which I think is only available on DVD. I don't think it's on streaming. I don't think it's on Blu-ray, but it is on DVD. And I think I bought it for like $12, uh, which yeah. is probably overpaying for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got so much to talk about yeah it's another troubled production but uh, I'm very looking forward to discussing it and revisiting this film as am I and on that note I think we can cross out Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday <laughs> yes and cross out Horror Queers <laughs> This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.